Welcome to our first EBRD podcast from a very sunny London. My name is Jonathan Charles, and today we're launching Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives. It's a series of podcasts about the economic ideas which are shaping today's world. Some of them are actively helping us in our mission to invest in changing lives. Others are an important part of the economic landscape in which we operate. Today, we're talking about microcredit. It first came to public attention in the 1980s. It was seen as a tool which could really make a difference by funding the creation and expansion of micro enterprises, producing additional income, which would lift the borrower's households out of poverty. Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Give a woman microcredit, she, her husband, her children and her extended family will eat for a lifetime. That was Bono. He was quoted as once saying that in The Economist. However, in recent years, the notion of microfinance as a miracle cure has been intensely debated. Our guest today is Ralph de Haas, the EBRD's head of research, author of numerous publications on microcredit, including Microcredit, Neither Miracle Nor Mirage. And you're going to help us, Ralph, shed light on this Hopefully, very yes. complex issue. Ralph, what do you mean when you say neither miracle nor mirage? What I meant by that is to say that um, basically this has been a debate with very strong positions taken by both um, sides of the debate. On the one hand, we've seen a more almost anti-capitalist side of the development world that saw microfinance as a uh, a tool of the financial world to almost bring people into poverty by uh, giving them access or forcing debt on them. On the other side, there has been the more liberal part of the development world that saw this as an, a very good and very effective intervention to help people get access to the financial system, take out a loan and lift themselves out of poverty. And of course, since this is credit, it's microcredit, it's not giving people money, it's about lending them money. And so it can also be a very efficient way of um, trying to help people uh, to escape poverty. It's probably so, worth de- defining, mm-hmm. isn't it, actually, Ralph, what we mean when we talk about microcredit and, and the sort of levels of credit do. that we're talking about. Exactly. So this is about really small loans, depending on what country you're looking at. Uh, it can be loans that are as small as 100 or 200 US dollars, up to um, two, three thousand dollars in some of our countries of operation where uh, income levels are slightly higher. But it's about small loans. And in most cases, though not all cases, but in most cases, it's about Uh, what we call joint liability lending. So it's people taking loans together as a group and they sort of insure each other against the ability to not uh, repay the loan. So uh, that insurance mechanism is actually a very important uh, part of the original microfinance model. Uh, More recently, some of the uh, microfinance institutions have moved away from that and we can maybe discuss that, that later on. But for now, I think it's important to keep in mind these are small loans that people have to pay back. It's not a gift and they mutually insure themselves um, to make sure that there is repayment. Typically, Ralph, what do people do with these microloans? So basically, until a couple of years ago, we we really didn't know uh, the answer to that question. Um, There's not a lot of monitoring by the uh, the lenders to to see what people actually did with uh, with the money. So I think one of the good things of some of the more recent studies that have been undertaken, very rigorous studies that have been uh, done by researchers in in seven uh, different countries, is to actually, first of all, find out exactly that question, what do people do with it? And what we found, somewhat to our surprise, is that a lot of people use this microcredit as a form of consumer credit. So they use it to buy a television, a fridge, or uh, another useful household appliance, which is great. It's apparently something that they really need and are willing to borrow uh, and pay for. But it's not the sort of narrative that we've heard from the microfinance industry. So 
Um, there are people that use this money to set up an enterprise, and in some cases, but in, not in the majority of cases, unfortunately, they are successful in doing that. But a lot of people actually use it as, as a form of, um, of consumer credit. I think a lot of people will be surprised when they hear that, because that's not, as you say, the narrative that we've been used to. We've been told, oh, yeah, it is the, the Bono quote, you know, exactly. give, give a woman the microcredit and that's it for life. Exactly. No, and I think that's the, the narrative from the microfinance industry is a for a long time has been very implicit and not very well thought through and based on small cases or examples of how people um, actually manage to, uh, to get out of poverty. And of course, there's always the ability to find an example to, to make your case. There's always, if you look hard, you will find somebody that used microcredit and then became a, um, you know, an entrepreneur that actually could help their, their family and became less poor and more healthy and better educated. Um, but I think the importance of rigorous research is to make, make sure that we know whether this is actually what's happening on average or whether these are just instances that are not representative for the, for the average picture. Um, and I think a lot of research has actually tried to sort of recreate that whole narrative and f try to find evidence along the way. And so what researchers, again, in countries ranging from Mexico to India to Bosnia and Herzegovina, Mongolia, some of our countries as well, have actually found is that, first of all, the uptake of microcredit is much lower than people usually thought. So if you introduce microcredit in a new region, it's not like everybody is queuing up at the microfinance institutions asking for microcredit. On average, it's about 13 to 31% of all people that are actually interested in the first place. But then we get to the point you made earlier, if they get microcredit, they often use it as a consumer type um, loan. They are not actually using it to set up a microenterprise and try to become less, um, less poor. So what does that say about the effectiveness, really, of doing microcredit? Well, these two things together, of course, make the effectiveness, if you define effectiveness as um, um, this being a poverty alleviation tool, already from the beginning, already quite questionable. Because, you know, if you buy a fridge that may be very useful for your utility and for your household um, um, uh, welfare, but it will not probably not help you to um, to escape uh, to escape poverty unless you're going to use that uh, fridge to sell a small small enterprise, which you know in some cases may actually be the case. So what we did then in a number of studies is to try to find out, okay, what happens to these people that actually take the microcredit loan and start to invest, and what we see is that people do use microcredit, they set up an enterprise. These enterprises grow a little bit, but not really a lot. So it really seems to be the case that there's only a small percentage of those people that use microcredit to actually set up an enterprise that are very successful in doing that. Um, and that means that probably there are a lot of people out there that are poor, they are an entrepreneur out of a necessity rather because they are very inspired uh, entrepreneur and in that sense that is actually you know showing up in the statistics in the sense that these are marginal businesses if you want. Um, That's all very interesting I mean all that evidence is very interesting so what does it lead us to think in terms of the way that micro lending can be made more effective mm -hmm. and actually can hit its targets in a way perhaps that was originally envisaged? Exactly um, well I think a lot of microfinance institutions are looking at these results now and are thinking very hard about that question there's a lot of experimentation going on where um, first of all people are trying to to change the product a little bit so we see um, that some um, MFIs, microfinance institutions, are moving away from this group liability, which some people think is a very cumbersome way of lending, to individual liability. Other institutions are introducing grace periods, which is something that in larger loans is a very normal um, thing to have. So this means that people that take a loan do not have to start repaying one week after they got the loan, but they get a two or three month period in which they can actually start up their business before they have to start uh, repaying, which if you think about it, it seems like a very logical uh, thing to do. And there is some evidence that this actually helps 
businesses to grow faster and become more productive. Uh, they also become slightly more risky, so this is of course something to keep in mind as well. And there are other institutions that try to expand the product offer. So they are not just thinking about microcredit, but they also try to see whether they can combine microcredit with all kinds of training. So maybe it's not just money that these people are lacking. Maybe they also need to have a financial literacy course or they need to be taught about you know, management issues that even in a small enterprise like uh, the ones we're talking about may be, uh, may be very important. Uh, so those, some, those are some of the, the issues that the microfinance in industry is thinking about in order to make the impact of the products uh, larger and more successful. All right, you're listening to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, an EBRD podcast on how economic ideas can help to change people's lives. Share your thoughts with us on microcredit at EBRD, uh, that's at EBRD on Twitter, and we're on Facebook as well. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing microcredits uh, with our guest, Ralph de Haas, whose research and articles you can find on ebrd.com. Ralph, you, you mentioned just a little while ago group lending. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of group lending against individual lending? Okay, so so the, I think for this it's good to think back about why this group lending was originally introduced. It's, it's basically a way for um, lenders, for microfinance institutions, to source out a big part of the work that normally loan officers would do. So basically, instead of screening and monitoring their borrowers themselves, they let other borrowers do that for them. And the idea is that these other people that live in these villages have a much better idea of who is trustworthy, who is a hard worker, than the loan officers, which are usually based in in some other city. Um, And the advantage of this, uh, an added advantage, is that you can really leverage the social capital that people have in these villages, right? So everybody knows each other, they know each other very well, and so if you are the one in a group that's not repaying, you will get punished, if you will, by the other... The other so peer um, pressure is very important. It's, it's a yeah. peer pressure, exactly. Um, and this is important because many of these people don't have traditional collateral that they can put up. Uh, and then this, this holds in particular for a lot of women in, in developing countries that do have less access to traditional collateral. So this peer pressure and social capital is very important to help these people um, to get access to these, to these group loans. Um, this has worked for a really long time. Um, increasingly, I think there's also evidence that people find this a very burdensome way of, of borrowing. Uh, first of all, because they, they are subject to this peer pressure, which is not a nice thing to, um, to have. Uh, it also means that there's often repayment meetings every week where you have to go to the village square, you have to sit together and talk about your projects, which uh, can be cumbersome as well. Um, and so because people tend to find this um, either tedious or uh, time-consuming, a lot of microfinance institutions are now moving to more individual liability lending. I think that it's in itself a good development. Um, one thing that we need to keep in mind and some of the results that um, we found in, a, in Mongolia where we did one of these uh, studies is that some people may be more suitable to have an individual loan and this is mainly the more, the more highly educated people that are actually able and willing to get an individual loan but there may also people like the lesser educated um, uh, people that actually are much much better fit for a group loan. They get they actually benefit from the interaction and they learn from the other uh, other people. Um, we also find that it's a very good way to share uh, the risk of getting those loans. So people can help each other out. They can even repay them in case somebody has temporary problems. And that risk sharing element is very important. And we find actually that it is particularly important in those villages where there is more risk in the village because of agricultural activities or other or other things. So I think it's important for the industry to realize that. This individualization of liability is good. It's a very effective way to get more people interested in the product. But at the same time, we have to make sure that some other, you know, other people, in particular less educated people, are not left out because the, the group liability product would, would disappear, basically. 
It's increasingly important, Ralph, isn't it, amongst many international institutions, many government policies in many countries uh, to foster inclusion, more inclusive mm -hmm. economies to bring more people into the economy, whether it's uh, women who are often disadvantaged in many economies or young people or disadvantaged regions. How does microcredit play into this and in microfinance? Well, originally, again, this, this, this was a product that was targeted mainly at women, exactly for the, for the reason that you, you mentioned. They were, um, in many countries, excluded from, from the system, for the financial system, for a variety of reasons. One very important one being that in many uh, countries, it's much easier for men to have access to, to assets, to have assets legally in their name. And so it's easier for them to um, have collateral and, and use that collateral to get a loan. So it's a very technical argument, if you will, why women were disadvantaged in these, these countries. And by sort of replacing that collateral with social collateral or peer pressure, they, they actually try to, to give these people access to, uh, to, a, um, to the formal financial system. I think it's a very difficult question to, to answer to what extent this has been successful. If you just look at the data and some of the research that has been done recently, you see that um, if women get access to microcredit and if they are successful in um, setting up an enterprise and expanding household income, which is a big if, um, in those cases, they tend to use the proceeds in a different way than, than men do. And this is something probably that the Bono quote was, was mm. very indirectly referring to. So you see that they spend more of their income on um, expenses for the household, on, on education, health, clean water, things like that. So if you, from a pure development perspective, it may actually make sense to target um, um, women specifically or make sure that they have um, access to, uh, to, to credit. Um, the problem is, of course, that the, there's this big if that I mentioned earlier on. Um, and if you look at the success rate of female-owned enterprises in a large variety of, of countries, and, and now I'm talking still about very small micro-enterprises, um, the, the evidence that we have currently is that these enterprises tend to be smaller and less successful. Um, that's not because women are worse entrepreneurs, but I think it's a combination of them selecting into different industries, often industries with lower returns, less risk, mm. also industries that they can combine with household work that, where they don't have to travel a lot. Again, um, uh, cultural constraints may be, may be um, uh, coming in there. Uh, and so for those, those reasons, from a purely um, sort of economic impact story, you may actually want to you know, focus more on male-run enterprises because these are actually the ones that tend to grow faster and more aggressively. So there's this tension in a way in, uh, in the sense you want to include more people into the system, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's also give, going to give you the, the highest development impact or transition impact, if you will. Just to conclude, I mean, from what you've been saying, it sounds as though the, the jury is out a bit about, you know, in terms of the assessment of the mm -hmm. effectiveness mm -hmm. of microfinance. So where do you see this sector going? We've had these very rigorous studies now in seven countries, in four continents. So I think we have a pretty good idea now of what the impact is of this standard uh, microcredit product. It's not lifting people out of poverty on a large scale. It's also not harming people in a structural way. That's, I think, very important as well to, to realize. And we actually find that it's a useful financial product. And maybe that's what we should have you know, expected all along. People have, there is a demand for it. It's not as massive as we, as we originally thought, but there is a demand for it. Um, and people are using it, and they are using it to make their lives less risky. They can use it to absorb shocks. Um, they don't have to sell off assets when they are hit by a crisis or uh, somebody dying in their family. Um, and even in a small minority of, of cases, they are actually using it to set up an enterprise and become, become less poor. So I think what the industry now has to do is to try to you know, take those positives and build on that. Um, one way of doing that is by trying to distinguish 
at the very beginning between those people that are real entrepreneurs and that have a chance to actually grow a business and those people that aren't interested in becoming an entrepreneur in the first place and they just want to have a consumer loan. So if you realize that this is the case, just give those people that want a consumer loan a small consumer loan and give the people that actually want to become a real entrepreneur maybe a larger loan with uh, different modalities like a grace period. So differentiation, I think, is going to be very important in the next couple of years. Another issue is making loans much more flexible. The grace period is one of the things that I mentioned already. Another thing is to help people to get products that are much better targeted at the type of enterprise that they are doing. So instead of having very fixed repayment schedules, you can actually make sure that repayment schedules uh, match the incoming ca cash flows of the enterprise. So by having more flexibility, uh, more differentiation, um, I think it can be, become a much more attractive and more impactful product for the, for the industry and for, for people um, that, are, that are boring. Interesting thoughts. So thank you very much, Ralph. Well, that's it for today. Share your thoughts and questions with us at EBRD on Twitter. We're on Facebook too. Visit iTunes or EBRD.com slash podcast to download the latest episode. Until next time, goodbye.